So we're looking at uh, this series, hashtag, that makes it cool and trendy, do you know him? And uh, we've already talked about the fact that Jesus is real, that he's the restorer, the teacher, the king, and our friend. And this morning, we are looking at, do you know him? The revolutionary. Do we know him? The revolutionary. Well, when you think of a revolutionary, I wonder what comes to your minds. What is the icon of a revolutionary? Is it that? Che Guevara, really um, strong image, the black and white and red. Um, I think uh, in ye olden days, people used to have it on T-shirts and car bumpers and all that kind of stuff. He, he was, is the icon of a revolutionary. And in a similar vein, Mao Zedong, that same kind of look. When we think of a revolutionary, that's the kind of image that jumps straight into our minds. In 2005, the church ads campaign were coming up with a new idea for Christmas. Well, that's their job, isn't it? They're trying to come up with smart ideas that connect with the public and make people think about Jesus and the church all of the time. In 2005, they came up with this new idea for Christmas. If you can't read it, it says this, December the 25th, revolution begins, celebrate the birth of a child. Do you recognize the branding? I mean, it's kind of there, isn't it? Right in your face, the red and the black and the white, and even the way that Jesus is portrayed, a baby's face, but with the image of a revolutionary. I don't know how you feel about that. Do you think it's shocking or striking? The truth is that if you're putting something on a bus stop or a bus, then you need it to stand out, don't you? You need it to, to communicate a response in people, whether that's a positive one or a negative one. You need people to notice. I wonder how you feel when you see that image in front of you. Revolution. You know, we decided on these topics an awfully long time ago. Revolution, revolution so often begins in ideals, doesn't it? In philosophy and thinking concepts. But almost always is worked out with the same traditional weapons of violence and bloodshed and death. And whether we go back in time, I got to study the French Revolution for two whole years my A-level history. And it was so idealistic. Some, everything was going to be new, renewed. That's the whole purpose of it. The Enlightenment would come. But almost all of it ended on the edge of the guillotine. Because that's the nature of revolution. The French or the American or numerous military coups that have and are occurring across our world even today. The traditional weapons of revolution are violence and bloodshed and death. So Jesus, the revolutionary, December the 25th, the revolution begins. Well, when we think of Christmas, we cast our minds back often to Isaiah chapter 9 and to the names of Jesus, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Emmanuel, Revolutionary? Don't think so. 
What kind of revolution? What kind of revolutionary? Has even the word revolution been ironically hijacked? Is Jesus a real revolutionary? What kind of revolution? A revolution of love and hope. A revolution that says that things can be, and in fact will be, different. What does revolution really mean? Well, a sudden, complete, or marked change. You'll notice from that definition it says nothing about weapons, or blood, or death, or war, or anything, in fact. A sudden, complete, or marked change. Actually, it's just the returning of things, the revolving of things. That's why we use the same word, revolution, for a door, you know, one of those spinny doors that you always get trapped in. The returning of things to how they are meant to be, how they once were. The word radical, which kind of goes hand in hand with revolutionary, the word radical is just simply talking about things returning to their roots, to what their core is, to what their root is. Is Jesus a revolutionary or a radical when we think about him in those sorts of terms? When Jesus was born, he was born into a world of political upheaval. We've said that numerous times. Herod was king in Palestine, in Judea, a puppet king for the Romans. It was a world of great upheaval where the Romans were taking over and then being overthrown and various other nations were trying to claim power in that. Jesus was used to that being his existence. He was born into a world where violence was common. Many of the more up-to-date um, depictions of, of Jesus' story show that much better than, than the olden days ones. You know? So you get the Romans coming in on their horses to take whatever they could take, regardless of the cost to any of the people in the villages, to claim their taxes, to have their rights with a sword if people were not willing to give in. This was a violent time that Jesus was born into. It was a time like any other where humanity was a battleground. Jesus came as the light in the darkness. The light in the darkness. Not the light in the light. The light in the darkness. Jesus was born into a circumstance that wasn't dissimilar from anything that we might experience today. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, wrote this as part of his exploration of the Christian faith. He said, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death, disease, and sin. Christianity agrees. This is a universe at war, and we need to hold that. We talked about it in Revelation. It didn't stop at the end of Revelation. It's still true. There is a dark power. We call him Satan, the evil one, behind this, behind all of the darkness that we experience in our world. Jesus came into the world as light in the darkness. When they asked the guy who um, put together that church ads campaign, back in 2005, what his thinking was behind it. This is what he came up with. It's really, really good. 
He said this, his attitudes and behavior were revolutionary. He treated women with respect. He spent time with thieves, common prostitutes, and the disease-infected underclasses. He was defiant yet loving. He was an outlaw, seen as a political agitator, a man hunted and hated by the authorities. His revolution was one of love, respect, and hope. In everything he did, Christ was a revolutionary. We wanted to contrast Jesus with the revolutionaries of the 20th century to make people reconsider what makes a person revolutionary. It's good, isn't it? To reconsider, to think about that question, what kind of radical? What kind of revolution? I've been thinking about this over the last week and possibly a bit before that as well. And I've just broken it down because there's so many different things into three different areas, being a good Baptist minister, at least on occasions. Uh, So first of all, he is revolutionary in the things that he says, in the things that he says. Emma read for us from Matthew chapter 5, really familiar words from the Beatitudes. Frankly, we could have read Matthew 5, 6 and 7, because everything that Jesus says during what we call the Sermon on the Mount is revolutionary. It's revolutionary. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Really? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that, does, that doesn't balance, does it? That's not how it works. Here's a good one. Blessed are those who mourn. Oh, really? For they will be comforted. Actually, the Greek word is makarios. And blessed is a quite a churchy type word, isn't it? The Greek word means happy. Happy are those who mourn. It really strikes you, doesn't it? For they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Now, we're not like keen on meekness, really, are we? I think it's a bit like pathetic. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Why? Because they'll inherit the earth. No, that's not right. That's not how it works. People who push forward, who get on, who take power, they inherit the earth, don't they? Not the meek. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who, uh, so verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. That's not how you feel, is it? That's not how people across the world are feeling today when people are insulting them, persecuting them, saying evil stuff about them. Jesus says, you're blessed when that happens. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus goes on and talks about himself being the fulfillment of the law. He says this, you have heard it said long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother, oh, how many of you have brothers in this room? I've got two. (laughs) Anyone ever been angry with your brother? Oh, sisters count as well, by the way, I think. (laughs) Then he goes on to say this, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I may not ask you to put your hands up for this. (laughs) You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You know, guys, we are not naive here, are we? What Jesus is saying is, you're normal. When you get angry or you're a bit, you lust towards someone, you're normal. Actually, I'm, I'm going way deeper than that. You, know, you need to wake up because my revolution 
is a revolution of the heart, which is much deeper than anything that you've said already. He goes on and on, and again in Luke chapter 6, which is the same basic uh, story. Luke chapter 6. Hard to read this, by the way, in the context of this week, verse 27. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. And so on. Hard to read those words this week. This is Jesus. The things he says are radical. They are revolutionary. You cannot get away from that only by familiarity. If you hear what he's actually saying, those things are absolutely transforming. He's also radical in the things that he does, and there's too many to mention, really. But turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. quite like to hear some rummaging going on. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. says, sorry, from verse 2, a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. This didn't happen. People with leprosy were held outside of the city. They were not allowed to come in. They were supposed to have a bell saying, unclean, unclean. They were not supposed to be near anyone. This man came to Jesus. Jesus should have said, go away. Go away from me. What are you doing here? The man said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. What did Jesus do? He stood far away and said, be clean. But he didn't, did he? He reached out his hand. He touched the man. You did not touch someone with leprosy. He touched him. He said, be clean. Jesus Cleanness, his holiness, transformed the uncleanness of the man with leprosy. You turn over to chapter 9 and verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors? And sinners, a tax collector was the lowest of the low. He colluded with the Romans. He was a traitor to his own people. He was bottom of the pile. Jesus called Matthew, come with me. Worse than that, he went to Matthew's house. Hospitality is such a key thing in the Middle East. Who you eat with communicates who you are with, who's important, who you value. Not only did he eat with Matthew, then all Matthew's tax collector mates come along and other sinners. They all eat together. These are the kind of people that Jesus associates with. What Jesus does is radical. It's outrageous. In Luke chapter 7, we find Jesus at another meal. This time, he's gone to the Pharisee's house. You know, Jesus doesn't exclude anybody. He'll eat with the Pharisees too, because they're not perfect. As he's eating the meal there, a woman comes in, a dodgy woman. She breaks this 
alabaster jar over Jesus' feet. And then she gets her really long hair, which should have been tied up, and she washes his feet with her long hair. Now tell me you don't think that's weird, and that you would not think that was really uncomfortable if that was you. This isn't normal. This is Jesus. Jesus, who this woman, who's an outcast, is so comfortable with, so grateful to, that she'll put herself in a Pharisee's house where she's going to be, like, abused, really, verbally, thrown out, probably. She lets her hair go long, which is like an inappropriate thing to do. She kneels down. She washes Jesus' feet and she, quote, wastes all this expensive perfume on him. Now you tell me that Jesus has not radically encountered her and transformed her life, that she will do that for him. That Jesus is happy to be judged by the people around him. Because actually it doesn't matter to him what they think. It matters to him that this woman is valued. And then in John chapter 4, here we go again. Jesus finds himself in Samaria. Oh dear. Then he finds himself at a well with a woman. Oh dear, that's a bit bad again. Oh, and then this woman happens to be a woman of not great reputation. Oh, that's not great either. Anyone who was concerned about what people thought about them would have left at that point. They'd have walked away from Samaria and away from any woman and away from particularly this woman. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus speaks to her. I think she's like shocked out of her boots at that point. So can you get me a drink of water? What, me? See, Jews didn't speak to women. They didn't even speak to their own wives in public. What, me? A woman? A Samaritan woman, and she knows, she doesn't know that he knows, but she knows that she's a woman of no great reputation. Can you get me a drink, please? And he doesn't just say, oh, it's hot, isn't it, for the time of year. He talks to her about her. He's interested in her, in her life, in her story. Even more um, offensive, he talks to her about theology. Rabbis did not speak to women about theology. Should have stayed that way, I think. <laughs> See, Jesus just crosses every boundary, every issue, every person who's excluded. He just is radical in the way that he behaves. And people respond to that. Matthew chapter 12, we see Jesus and his disciples and they're walking through the fields. And it's a Sabbath day. And, uh, and they're feeling a bit peckish. But they're not allowed to pick any fruit or corn or anything else because they're not allowed to do that on the Sabbath because there's a gazillion different rules for what you aren't allowed to do on the Sabbath. There still are. But Jesus, he picks the corn and he gives it to them. Now, that may not sound particularly revolutionary to you, but you just didn't do that, not on the Sabbath, because you'd broken the law. And the Pharisees came around him and they said... Uh, Jesus, here's a man with a shriveled hand, and um, what do you think? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
Jesus says, well, if your sheep fell in a ditch, you'd kind of get him out, wouldn't you? And isn't a human being more important? Jesus takes the man's hand. Notice how often he touches people. Takes the man's hand and is healed. They're so upset with him because he's broken the Sabbath. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And if you don't understand that, what he's saying is, I'm God. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And in John 2, we see that Jesus clears the temple. Well, that's a radical bit of behavior, isn't it? He comes in, he sees them set up the tables like a market, trading area, making money out of people, even people who are poor, abusing the poor. Jesus comes in, he throws over the tables. He says, you have made this house a den of robbers, and it's a house of prayer. You know, Jesus was not just sensitively radical. He was radical and revolutionary for the sake of the kingdom of God. And the third way that he's radical is in the person that he is. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. When he's before the high priest in Matthew 26, he says, I've heard who you are, that you're the son of God. And Jesus says, it's as you say. It is as you say. Philippians 2, we see there who Jesus is, that he didn't hold on to the glory of heaven, but came to earth. He came into the darkness. He came to be one of us, to walk our path. He went to the cross. He chose to go to the cross because he loved us and took our sin in our place. He was raised back to life and ascended on Thursday, not literally. <laughs> he ascended to heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. And one day, he will come back again. You see, Jesus doesn't exclude anyone. He includes social outcasts, lepers, and tax collectors. He doesn't exclude anyone. But everyone who comes to him is transformed. Do you hear what I'm saying? He does not exclude anyone, but anyone who comes to him will be transformed by that encounter with Jesus. Everyone was, everyone is, everyone ever will be. Everyone is welcome, but everyone is changed. Jesus breaks religious taboos. How many of those do we still have? What, what are our blind spots? Because the Pharisees thought they were doing a great job keeping the law. He breaks their religious taboos because he is the Lord, not the religious rites, whatever they might be. Jesus says it's about what's in your heart, not just the behavior. The behavior comes from the heart. But if you just put the behavior on the outside, you're not achieving anything. Jesus says it's about what's in your heart. He is the restorer of the kingdom of God and he prioritizes the values of the kingdom of God. The revolution is simply this. It's about who's in charge and about what his kingdom looks like. Everything that I've said to you already this morning fits into that. Who is in charge and what does his kingdom look like? It's been a tough week, hasn't it? But uh, a while ago, it was a tough week somewhere else. In uh, 2012 at Christmas time, there was a school shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, 
Connecticut. And uh, it was just appalling, and I'm sure that you recall so many children were killed and their teachers. And somebody at that point said this, an act of violence, Christmas 2012, Newtown, Connecticut, reminds us that the advent of Christ is not a kitsch nativity scene in a shopping centre at midwinter, nor a sentimental moment for kids to shine as the star or Mary or Joseph in the play, lovely though that is, but a crucial moment in a battle played out both on a cosmic scale and in our hearts. December the 25th, the beginning of the revolution. Because even at his birth, people tried to destroy him. Even around his birth, many baby boys under two years of age were massacred. This is the world that we are in. Jesus' birth is something revolutionary. The coming of Jesus is a dangerous mission. It's a great invasion. It's a daring raid into enemy territory, the earthly beginning of the revolution. John says in 1 John 3 verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And let's not minimize any of that. That's why Jesus has come ultimately to destroy everything that is the devil's work. Some of that is external to us, but some of it is in our hearts, isn't it? The reason that Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. Everything of the kingdom of darkness, everything of the power of darkness, everything of sin and death and hell, however that reveals itself in our world, the aim of Jesus' coming, the purpose of it, was to destroy the devil's work. So this week there have been many images, haven't there? I just chose one. What kind of revolutionary are we talking about? Twenty-two people killed in Manchester. Twenty-eight Coptic Christians on a church outing, hijacked and shot in cold blood. Christians in Manila taken out of their cars and buses on the streets of the city and shot. Believers in Nigeria and Sudan and Eritrea and many other places. Destroyed. Power of darkness, isn't it, at work. And whether it's ISIS or Daesh or Boko Haram, doesn't really matter. Because the aim is terror and fear and control by force. Every time, isn't it? Terror and fear and a control by force. And it struck me this week, two things really. That what we're talking about here is a revolution of terror, because that's their, their aim, is the revolution. A revolution of terror versus a revolution of grace. Because that's what Jesus brings. That's why, alongside the horrific stories, have been the stories about the homeless man who cradled the dying lady in his arms. Have been the stories of 
our amazing emergency services who were on the scene at risk of their own lives because no one had the faintest idea what was going on at that point. Of doctors who, having done whole long shifts, got up in the middle of the night to go back to work because the goodness and grace of God is seen in our world and mostly in Jesus. You know, we see that. This is a revolution of grace. Why do we respond to those things? Because Jesus is attractive. Jesus is beautiful. His revolution is something that's contagious and attractive, isn't it? When the Egyptian woman whose husband was killed in the shooting in December at Christmas said, I forgive them. Why was it reported everywhere? Because there's something beautiful, compelling, we can't kind of understand, but at the same time, we want to be like that. A revolution of grace touches into our own hearts. You know, what we saw on, on Monday night was another suicide bomber. Suicide that destroys. What we see in Jesus is self-sacrifice that saves. When someone goes in and they blow themselves up and they don't care, it's just utterly destructive. What Jesus did was he looked at this world and its mess and brokenness and pain and he chose, please don't let anyone tell you otherwise, he chose to go to the cross. He knew what the cross meant. He knew the pain. He knew the cost. But his love for the world was so great that he chose to go to the cross to sacrifice himself in my place, in your place, to save us. To save us personally. To save us in our brokenness and unforgiveness and mess save us in our questions and our doubts. You know, the first time I ever sung that um, I've had questions song was after the Beslan massacre. I mean, it's just, it, 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 these things happen, don't they? To save us, to save this world, to reconcile it back to God again. He is, Jesus is the revolution. It's him, he is it. Him. It's our encounter with him that transforms. It's our encounter with him that writes things back to how they were. It's our encounter with him that deals with the core, the heart, the roots of who we are, that changes us. Billy Graham said this, the men who followed him were unique in their generation. They turned the world upside down because their hearts had been turned right side up. The world has never been the same. He turned the world upside down or right way up, doesn't matter. So listen, don't expect that your life will stay the same if you follow him. Because you might want him to be a revolutionary. You might want him to be radical. You might want him to go to the cross, to forgive, to pray for his enemy to heal the outcast, to have dinner with the excluded. You might want him to do that, but what about you? What about me? Ah, well, that's not so easy, is it? 
If you encounter him and follow him, do not expect your life to be the same. Not last week, but the week before, I had the privilege of um, hearing uh, Pastor Edward from the church in Damascus in Syria speak uh, a few times. And when you've led a church in the midst of a war zone for seven years, with everything around you turning to rubble, frankly, I thought I should listen quite hard. He talked about one young man who, as Phil was saying earlier, had become a believer in Jesus from a Muslim background. And we really should pray for this next month ahead, because there are so many thousands of stories coming out of the Middle East and beyond of people who've encountered Jesus. And that means jihadists and leaders of ISIS. So let's pray for that, shall we? Anyway, this guy, he'd, he'd met Jesus from a Muslim background and things were getting very threatening around them and the church that they belonged to. And people said to him, he was about 18 years of age, you have a Muslim name, you have been a Muslim all your life. Fade away. Fade into the background, hide, just don't, don't make yourself present, because no one will know. Now, this young man said, I can't do that, because Jesus has done everything for me. I cannot deny him, I cannot. And his mum, because you know, these people have parents, siblings, friends, his mum didn't know what to do. Everything within her wanted to say, please, please hide, go away. And yet everything within her was so proud that her son wanted to stand for Jesus. He met with Jesus. He revolutionized the world. And when they said to him, will you deny Jesus? He said, I will never deny him. He was killed. Do not think that if you encounter Jesus, who is a revolutionary, your life will stay the same. If it stays the same, you have not met him. And it may not look the same as it does for him in Damascus. It probably won't. But when he calls us to stand with the outcast, to forgive, to pray for our enemy, to care when we don't want to care, to touch the sick person where we feel we're going to get contagious, contagious, when he puts us in an environment of darkness, like he was. What about then? What about then? Do you know him? Do I know him? Really? Have we encountered him? What's it doing in my heart, in my life, in yours, in our church? Do you know him?